Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's deep dive podcast into genre television. I'm Josh Wiggler, your host here on Series Regular. And for the next several weeks, we're all in on one thing and one thing only, Game of Thrones. Consider this your weekly window into the world of Westeros as we thoroughly explore each episode of the Emmy-winning epic's final season. First and foremost, if you're not already aware, this is the second series regular podcast of the week, following on the heels of my conversation with THR's TV critic and TV's Top 5 podcast co-host Dan Feinberg. If you want to hear our first impressions of the final season premiere, please go search the archives and give that a listen. For this podcast, you and I will be flying together solo on a dragon date through Winterfell, which is both the name of the Great Northern Castle as well as the name of the final season premiere which was directed by David Nutter and written by Dave Hill. It's also the shortest episode of the final season at 54 minutes. Even after talking things over with Dan, there's still a lot of meat left on the Winterfell bone, enough to feed the Dothraki and unsullied soldiers currently kicking around the castle grounds. Without further ado, let's feast. Before we get into the main course, how about an appetizer? I want to stop down on the opening credit sequence for a little bit because it really is tremendous. As Ramin Djawadi's iconic score fills your ears, you might be tempted to visualize the classic crawl across Westeros we've come to know and love over the course of the seasons. But those days are done. For the final season, creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss commissioned a new sequence, one that's more personal, more intimate reflective of the tightened scope of the final season story. We're not Nessos anymore. It's all Westeros all the time. And really, it's more or less two locations, the sprawling expanse of the north with a side order of King's Landing. The sequence begins just north of the Wall, the first time we've ever been allowed that far north on the map, before bursting through the ruined husk of Eastwatch, stopping over at Last Hearth, House Umber's castle seen near the end of the premiere. From there, we spend a whole lot of time at Winterfell, poring over House Stark's ancestral home in granular detail. This isn't just to express the close confines of the story's final six episodes, either. It's a means of acquainting the viewer with Winterfell's most important nooks and crannies, as we're set to spend at least one entire episode here in a wall-to-wall battle sequence directed by Miguel Sapochnik. Most signs are pointing to that episode being episode three. Among the places we see, the Godswood and the Crypts. It's fair to say we should expect some bloodshed in both of those locations before long. The credit sequence ends in King's Landing, culminating in a final face-to-face with the Iron Throne. The show will undoubtedly resolve the question of who's sitting on the thing before all is said and done, assuming it exists at all anymore, but there's something else worth paying attention to in the King's Landing portion of the opening credits. The Scorpion, the formal name for the massive crossbow Maester Kyburn cooked up in Season 7 to take down the dragons, It didn't do its job last season, only wounding Drogon slightly during the spoils of war. But the fact that we're seeing it again in this context makes me think that its deadliest days are still ahead. Whatever lies ahead, I think we're very likely just scratching the surface of this new sequence. In the past, the opening credits have morphed, reflecting the present journeys of our core cast of characters. If history repeats, then we should expect the sequence to evolve even further throughout the final six episodes which is a deadly prospect considering the White Walkers' steady march. With the credits out of the way, it takes no time at all to see the many ways in which the season premiere calls out to the past. Specifically, 
Winterfell echoes Winter is Coming, the first ever episode of Game of Thrones. Both episodes deal in the arrival of a royal party at Winterfell, albeit with some critical differences. Here's a quick sample of some of the final season premiere's best callbacks to the Game of Thrones pilot. In Winter is Coming, much of the action centered on King Robert Baratheon and his procession arriving in Winterfell. Your Grace, you've got fat. <laughs> Winterfell, of course, follows suit, albeit with a different royal party. Back in the day, King Robert rode into town on a horse. History repeats itself here with the arrival of Daenerys Targaryen, except she has a couple thousand additional horse lords in the form of Dothraki warriors at her side, not to mention two dragons sailing overhead. The final season premiere's handling of Danny's arrival mirrors the way King Robert first landed at Winterfell and Winter is Coming. Then, there was a focus on both Arya Stark and Bran Stark doing everything in their power to sneak a look at the royal family. Now, Arya's still sneaking about, but not with the same childlike wonder. At least not until she sees the dragons in the sky. Brandon! I saw the king! He's got hundreds of people. How many times have I told you, no climbing? But he's coming right now, down our road. Bran, meanwhile, he's in the courtyard of Winterfell, patiently awaiting the arrivals, much wiser now than he was years ago when he was scolded by his mother for climbing the walls. Look at you. You're a man. Almost. Both episodes featured some frostiness in the form of meetings between two powerful women. Cersei Lannister and Catelyn Stark in Winter is Coming, and today, it's Daenerys and Sansa Stark in Winterfell. Back then, Cersei was the one who was characteristically chilly. My queen. My queen. Take me to your crypt. I want to pay my respects. We've been riding for a month, my love. Surely the dead can wait. Now, it's Sansa who offers up a cold reception to the visiting queen. Queen Daenerys of House Targaryen. My sister, Sansa Stark, the Lady of Winterfell. Thank you for inviting us into your home, Lady Stark. The North is as beautiful as your brother claimed, as are you. Winterfell is yours, Your Grace. These kinds of callbacks are all over the episode. There's the White Walkers butchering their victims and turning them into a message, which we'll get into later. There's Bran and Jamie reuniting in Winterfell, which we'll get into later. A bunch of other scenes that we'll get into later. And it's all really fun to track for deep-cut fans of the show. But it's also instructive for how Game of Thrones is going to end. We're being reminded of the past right now. When our characters close their journeys in the weeks ahead, whether through death or the natural conclusion of the series, we should safely expect their ends to have roots in their past if not their very beginnings. The throwbacks not only show how much Arya and Sansa and Bran and Jon and Daenerys and everyone else have grown over nearly 10 years' worth of stories, but it also provides hints at where their stories are likely to end. May I ask, how are we meant to feed the greatest army the world has ever seen? While I ensured our stores would last through winter, I didn't account for Dothraki, Unsullied, and two full-grown dragons. What do dragons eat, anyway? Whatever they want. 
Let's take a closer look at one major player's perspective end, or at least her very turbulent present, Daenerys Targaryen. Much of Winterfell centers on the northern discomfort toward the Mother of Dragons. Sansa's feelings are clear, and she's not the only Stark sister who's skeptical of Daenerys. Where were you before? I could have used your help with Sansa. She doesn't like your queen, does she? Sansa thinks she's smarter than everyone. She's the smartest person I've ever met. Well, you're defending her. <laughs> you. I'm defending our family. So is she. I'm her family too. Don't forget that. Daenerys is many things. A breaker of chains, the Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, as well as the Unburnt, among so many other titles. She's also not a fool. She can sense the uneasiness from the Starks. Your sister doesn't like me. She doesn't know you. If it makes you feel any better, she didn't like me either when we were growing up. She doesn't need to be my friend. But I am her queen. If she can't respect me... Daenerys doesn't finish the thought, and she doesn't need to. We've seen what happens to people who can't respect the Dragon Queen. Indeed, in this very episode, one person finds out exactly what happens when Daenerys feels disrespected. Samuel Tarley, played by John Bradley, who learns the horrible truth about his father and brother's deaths at the Warrior Queen's command. I offered to let him retain his lands and titles if he bent the knee. He refused. At least I'll be allowed home again, now that my brother's the Lord. Your brother stood with your father. Thank you, Your Grace, for telling me. Um, may I? Of course. Daenerys's confession to Sam eventually drives Sam's confession to John, which leads us into one of the most cathartic conversations of the entire series. I gave up my crown, Sam. I bent the knee. I'm not king in the north anymore. I'm not talking about the king in the north. I'm talking about the king of the bloody seven kingdoms. Bran and I worked it out. I had a high septum's diary. Bran had whatever Bran has. What are you talking about? Your mother was Lyanna Stark. And your father, your real father, was Rhaegar Targaryen. You've never been a bastard. You are Aegon Targaryen, true heir to the Iron Throne. Sorry, I know it's a lot to take. My father was the most honorable man I ever met. You said he lied to me all my life. Your father, Ned Stark, he promised your mother he'd always protect you. And he did. Robert would have murdered you if he knew. You're the true king. 
Aegon Targaryen, sixth of his name, protector of the realm, all of it. It's not just that Sam believes in Jon Snow's birthright for the Iron Throne. He now has a very personal reason to mistrust Daenerys and her intentions as a ruler. I spoke with John Bradley this past week about playing out the scene between Sam and John, and during that conversation, he made it clear why his character has no faith in Daenerys. This is what Bradley told me, paraphrased a bit for clarity. I quote, I think Sam definitely sees Daenerys as unstable, as a volatile character, as somebody who is determined to succeed without a real moral compass. She'll kill people for a minor act of disobedience. I think Sam is very wary of her now and sees how dangerous she can be, not just for Jon Snow, but also in terms of the entire Seven Kingdoms. We could have a mad queen here. Sam knows enough about history to know what people who are slightly unhinged and slightly unbalanced are like when they're in charge and the damage they can cause. Sam has learned from the mistakes of history. He's never going to come around to Daenerys. He's too wise for that. He's too wary and suspicious of her now. If she's going to be incredibly destructive and volatile, then she could get the Seven Kingdoms into a worse position if she continues to be unyielding, impulsive, and so violent. If she's going to continue dealing with things in such a violent way, then he can only see dark days ahead if she's on the throne. His desire to tell Jon about his claim to the Iron Throne is all but informed by his desire to make sure some of those dark days of the Mad King and the past reigns of imbalance never continue into the future. Sam has an agenda now. He definitely has an agenda. End of quote. So, a lot to unpack there, and a lot to unpack in the Daenerys material in this episode. And here's some of what I've come up with as I've walked away from this episode, and as we're starting to look ahead towards the final season's second episode. I really think that the show wants us to be questioning Daenerys Targaryen. If Sansa and Sam, who are two of the smartest characters in the series, if they are both skeptical of Danny then I think we ought to be as well. And I'm saying this as somebody who has already made the prediction of thinking that Daenerys Targaryen is going to end this series on the Iron Throne. I still think it's a possibility, but I also think that we are meant to doubt whether or not she is going to be the innovative freedom bringer that she thinks that she is, or if she really will just be another spoke on the wheel that she's been fighting against. Let's go back a little bit further. Let's go back to season seven. This is season seven, episode four, when Jon Snow said something to Daenerys that I think has been very prophetic towards what we're seeing now with Danny. This was before she made the fateful choice to ride off and eventually burn Samuel Tarly's father and brother. I never thought that dragons would exist again. No one did. The people who follow you know that you made something impossible happen. Maybe that helps them believe that you can make other impossible things happen. Build a world that's different from the shit one they've always known. But if you use them to melt castles and burn cities, you're not different. You're just more of the same. Game of Thrones may be angling Daenerys as more of the same. There's an old scene from way back in season two, in the House of the Undying at Karth, where Daenerys envisions herself walking through the Red Keep, snow pouring in from a hole blown through the roof. Was that a vision of the future? It's quite possibly something we're going to see in the coming episodes. And more and more, I think we're meant to wonder whether Daenerys is going to be the cause of that level of destruction. With or without Daenerys' help, Whatever frozen horrors await in the future are likely the work of the Night King and his army of the dead. 
The White Walkers passed unseen through the premiere, but their handiwork was more than evident in the penultimate scene, set at last hearth. Stay back, he's got blue eyes! I've always had blue eyes! Blue-eyed Tormund Giant's Bane, brown-eyed Dolorous Ed, and one-eyed Beric Dondarrion reunite at the haunted castle, all but abandoned. Deep inside, they come across the first sign of life, and it's a horror show of death. Young Lord Ned Umber nailed to a wall, surrounded by a spiral of severed limbs. The Umber Boy. It's a message from the Night King. It's the eeriest scene of the episode, not the least of which because of the way it ends. If the horses last, we'll get there before the dead. We just have to hope the Night King doesn't come first. <laughs> Screaming aside, a lot of attention has been paid online to the Night King's message, the spiral. It's certainly not the first time we've seen it. Look no further than season seven, that same episode of John and Daenerys back together on Dragonstone. They're inside a cave, and they're looking at a bunch of cave drawings all over the walls. They were here together, the children and the first men. Doing what? Fighting each other. They fought together against their common enemy. Despite their differences, despite their suspicions, together. Included in the drawings, the same spiral seen at the end of the season 8 premiere, which we had already seen earlier in the series a couple of times, including when the Children of the Forest first created the White Walkers back in season 6's The Door, as well as in season 3's Walk of Punishment, when Mance Raider and his wildlings come upon the spiral in the form of a brutally butchered horse. Always the artists. So, what does the spiral mean? Lots of theories about that right now. There are some people who think it looks like the House Targaryen sigil, and they're not entirely wrong, especially given all the fire, but it's definitely not an exact one-for-one. One. Personally, I think any resemblance is nothing more than a coincidence, or subtextually similar at best. I don't think it means the Night King is his secret Targaryen, which is the current popular theory of the week. We have enough secret Targaryens, thank you very much. At the moment, I see it as nothing more than the Night King co-opting an ancient symbol of the Children of the Forest, the creatures that created the White Walkers in the first place. The Night King is reclaiming this old glyph and perverting its meaning, using it as a war cry as he and his army march upon not only the allied forces of the living in Westeros, but also the land that the Children of the Forest, their ancestors, once called their home. If there's any deeper meaning to the symbol, we'll find that out for sure in the weeks ahead. But for anyone who thinks it highlights the Night King as a Targaryen, I personally think you're best advised to ease down on that theory. One theory that still stands, though I hope it never pans out, is that the Night King and Bran Stark are the same person, separated across time. I don't know, who knows? That's going to be a bit of a reach for me if we go in that direction, but let's see what happens. 
More important to me is the fact that Bran is the Three-Eyed Raven, and as the Three-Eyed Raven, he's clearly a person of interest to the Night King, and it's a point that's very much not lost on Bran himself, to the point that Bran is growing incredibly impatient with everyone's mortal bickering back at Winterfell. We don't have time for all this. The Night King has your dragon. He's one of them now. The wall has fallen. The dead march south. Everyone has their various picks of who should live, who should die, who should sit on the Iron Throne at the end of Game of Thrones, who's the best character, all of it. But the MVP of the week as far as becoming an internet sensation? It is Brandon Stark with a Valyrian-tipped bullet. The memes are incredible. They are incredible. There's lots of very funny fans posting about how Bran does not give a fudge about anything. Except they don't mean fudge. I mean the F-dash-dash-dash word, and not fray either. Among the people who love this version of Bran, Isaac Hempstead Wright himself, who tweeted his support this week about everyone bringing Bran extremely online. He's another one of the Game of Thrones cast members that I had the pleasure of speaking with this week. Here's what he told me about why he loves Bran so much these days. And again, I both quote and I paraphrase. Quote, more or less, I'm pretty much playing Bran the same as I played him in season seven. But I was conscious of trying to have slightly more wisdom this time. I was trying to make him a little bit more like Max von Sydow's Three-Eyed Raven. In season seven, I felt like he was just overwhelmed. He had just had everything downloaded into his head. He hasn't quite come to terms with it yet. My approach in season eight is that he's slightly more in control of his powers, sitting there like the wise old man who knows what's going on and needs to explain to these petty mortals what the real important thing is. End quote. Given all of that context, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise how Bran views Jamie Lannister, the man who pushed him out a window so many years ago, the man who he meets again at the end of this episode. Again, this is quoting Isaac, quote, In a sense, it's just so irrelevant to Bran, really. His sole focus is that he wants the living to survive. He's on the side of the living. He's the ancient arch-nemesis of the Night King. He's so far beyond any petty squabbling or wanting to get revenge or a comeuppance on someone. He doesn't view the world like that anymore. He just views things as timelines that intersect and have to end up in certain places. I think from a story point of view, it's amazing to see it happen. Me as Isaac, again, this is Isaac talking, I was thrilled to see that reunion because it's such a poignant moment. And it's such a cool thing for Jamie to come back here and realize that Bran isn't Bran anymore. He's terrifying. In terms of Bran, though, I don't think he really cares. It's just not on his list of priorities. End quote. So put a pin in that for a second. Let's focus on a different interview. We're going to connect some things here. This week, The Hollywood Reporter spoke with Nikolai Coster-Waldo, who plays Jamie Lannister. He was asked about the final scene of the episode and where things may be going next. The erstwhile Jamie was understandably tight-lipped about the future. Really, in my travels speaking with this cast, he's one of the best secret keepers among the bunch. But he nonetheless offered some insight that I think is going to be instructive moving forward. Here's a small snippet of his conversation with THR's Patrick Shanley. Jamie, in a lot of ways, is a he's kind of a deconstruction of the noble knight archetype that we see in a lot mm. of fantasies. Uh, how do you view Jamie? Is he a hero? What do you think of him? Well, I don't no, no, I don't see him as a hero. <laughs> okay. uh, but I see him as a guy who's is incredibly dedicated to his to his family uh, and to the people he loves. And I, I do believe that the line that he says when he pushes Brent out yes. the window, "The things I do for love," is really uh, the core of him. He will do whatever it takes to protect the people he loves. And then uh, in the first season, it was Cersei uh, and their children. 
and uh, and uh, well, who, who knows what happens in 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 season eight? <laughs> but uh, but I think that that is really at the core. Uh, and also, the reason he left Cersei is in a way also because he loves her, right? And he loves the unborn child inside of her. And of course, that's one thing. And the other thing is, he is a man of his word. Even though he's known as this this dishonorable man, he actually always follows through. Right. Except that once with the Mad King. Yeah, he's killing the king. Well, he did save him. Yeah, he did. A million people, but, you know, who's counting? The trailer for Season 8, Episode 2 reveals Jaime standing before Daenerys Targaryen, the woman whose father he killed so many years ago. Jaime's kingslaying reputation may come back to haunt him as soon as this week's coming episode, though he won't be without character witnesses. His brother Tyrion, for instance as well as Brienne of Tarth, who has seen firsthand just how noble Jamie can be when his guard is down. You're a knight, Sir Jamie. I know there is honor in you. But the most surprising person in Jamie's corner just might be the star of the Game of Thrones internet right now, the person Jamie crippled all those years ago, Bran. Not only is he unlikely to care much about past grievances, as per Isaac Hempstead Wright, but Bran is uniquely equipped to see so many moments across time and space including the night Jaime killed Aerys Targaryen, right before the Mad King would have incinerated all of King's Landing. In Season 6, when he's downloading all of the Three-Eyed Raven's wisdom, Bran does see flashes of that fateful night. So it's already established on the show that Bran knows what really happened when the Kingslayer was born. If Jaime's going to make it out of the next episode alive, we may want to send a preemptive gift basket to Bran Stark. Not that he'd appreciate the gesture. We don't have time for all this. Speaking of no time, I'm all out of it. Podcast aside, we've got a ton going on over at THR.com slash Game of Thrones. I'm writing roughly a thousand articles a day, seems like it at least, with topics ranging from rounding up all of the premiere's many callbacks to interviews with the cast and well beyond. So if you're still hungry for more Thrones before season eight's second episode arrives, look no further. Once again, THR.com slash Game of Thrones. That's the place where you can fill yourself up. As always, thank you for listening to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's deep dive genre TV podcast. Subscribe to the show on your various podcast platforms. Email your questions and suggestions to seriesregular at thr.com or tweet them to me at Round Howard. Please do, by the way. We would love to read your questions, your theories, your feedback on the air for next week's episode. Again, keep an eye out at thr.com slash Game of Thrones for all of those columns and much more all season long. Until next time.